This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, Britain's Prime Minister made his international debut this week on tour in Germany and then France. Is the UK any closer to working out the Brexit conundrum? Also ahead, Italy has been given another four days to form a government after the collapse of an alliance between a far-right and anti-establishment party. We look at how the European Union might react. Plus, a look at the day's newspapers. I'm Juliette Foster and Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by the journalist Simon Brook and Marie Bion. Welcome to both of you. Now, this was the week when British Prime Minister Boris Johnson made his international debut. First up was a meeting in Berlin with the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, from whom he accepted a 30-day challenge to find an alternative to the Irish backstop. Next came Paris, where the French President Emmanuel Macron said the backstop was indispensable and that any agreement between the EU and the UK would have to be similar to the deal negotiated by Theresa May, Mr Johnson's predecessor. Well, the mood music from Downing Street suggests a Brexit deal is possible. So, is that true? Or is Boris Johnson simply delusional, Simon? <laughs> Good question. I don't know. It is interesting, isn't it? I remember yesterday actually comparing the headlines in the Times, which is very pro-Brexit or pretty pro-Brexit anyway, and the Financial Times. The Financial Times said that basically Boris had been sent away with a flea in his ear, no deal, uh, so to speak. Um, but the Times was suggesting the door was open. So I think what's interesting actually is if you look at the approach of both uh, Merkel and Macron, it followed a similar sort of uh, sequence, if you like, in their discussions, which was initially, we're not opening it, nothing's happening. But then, well, We'll see, perhaps. So well, I wonder well, whether there's been some like sort of collusion. almost like playing with words, though, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> what, is that your take, Marie? Well, basically, what they said yesterday and the day before yesterday was really nothing new, although we wanted to see something absolutely new and and uh, and, and crazy positive in the UK. Of course, Germany and France would not say, no, we are going to go for no deal, even though you can find a deal that's acceptable. Of course, they're not going to say that. Of course, they want a deal. So what Macron uh, said and what Merkel said, perhaps a bit clumsily, is that, of course, if you can find a solution before the deadline, we are more than happy to talk about it. And that was seen as a big breakthrough, uh, thanks to Boris Johnson and his optimism. Although it's just that basically they've been trying to say that Europe wants us to fail and all that. And then there was this glimmer of hope yesterday saying, oh, maybe they don't want us to fail. But it was all basically seen through the, the lens of the rhetoric that's happening in the UK. And the way we see it in France, is it's, it's, it's as if we're covering another story, basically. Mm, déjà vu. Well, yeah, yeah. Brexit story. What might have changed a little bit here, though, is the economic situation. Back in March, there were there was only the sort of suggestion of a recession in Europe. Mm. Whereas now, of course, we've I mean the, the purchase managers index, which is yeah, a pretty PMI, PMI, absolutely, which is a pretty uh, effective measure of the confidence of the economies across the EU, especially France and Germany, just beginning to tip into the possibility of rece uh, of recession. And of course, there's some of the commentators of pointing out France has a, a budget surplus of the UK of some 9 billion euros. So I'm just beginning to, I wonder whether perhaps a, a one eye to the economy of Europe is actually one of the reasons perhaps why there might be a, a chink mm. of light if it exists. But has there been a resolution of responsibility? Because before Boris Johnson left the United Kingdom, the narrative that he was pushing was, you know what, if we crash out of, out of Brexit and if it, if it all goes very messy, it, it's not our fault, it's the Europeans 
who've been uncooperative. And then you have the Germans and the, and the French saying, well, actually, no, if it all goes badly, it's your fault, not ours. What is their position on this? Have they agreed to disagree or is nobody going to take responsibility at the moment because they don't want to spoil the mu mood music? Well, no, nobody wants to take the responsibility. But at the moment, what the French are saying, uh, and I should, I'm sure the same in Germany, is that, well, your red line is the Irish border. We said all along that it is not negotiable. And the UK says, well, your red line is the Irish border and we have found a solution, although we don't know if it's working, but I'm sure it's working because we need optimism. So we can, it's just, a, it's a spinning uh, exercise, mm. basically. And and all, uh, both sides can uh, can can win at this game, although the, uh, politically they, they can both win at this game. Economically, that's another, another issue. And I guess at the end of the day, to resolve the Irish backstop issue would mean Europe throwing the Irish Republic under the bus and it simply is not going to do that. That is a no-brainer. <laughs> well, it is, but Ireland's in terrible trouble either way, isn't it? Because if you do have a no-deal, then don't forget that 40% of Irish exports to the EU go through the UK. So Ireland is in a really difficult situation. here. And I think when it comes to no-deal, the, the British government is also in communication terms, also in a difficult situation. Because on the one hand, when talking to the EU, they need to play it down. Won't be a problem. We'll sort it out because that's part of their negotiating position. But I think the problem is if they tell their uh, domestic audience, don't worry, it'll be fine if we have a, a, a no-deal Brexit. And then there is, you know, there are delays at the ports, there are empty shelves or something. It's going to look really bad. Mm. So with the UK audience... And that's actually audience, coming from their own think tanks as well. Well, that's the thing. And that's why they think in the UK audience, they need to play it up and make, and make it seem worse than it is. And then if it does happen, then it won't be so bad by comparison. But there's also problems as well for Boris Johnson within his own party, because he's, he's, he's pressed this do-or-die Brexit to actually win win back Conservative Party supporters who defected to Nigel, Nigel Farage's Brexit party. And then you've got hard Brexiteers in the, in the governing Conservative Party saying, look, you know, there's more to this than the Irish backstop. What about the £39 billion divorce settlement? We also want stronger curbs of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. So basically, Boris Johnson has found himself in Theresa May's position. He's riding several horses at once. He may have actually added a few more horses to the stable. <laughs> well, well, the hard Brexiteers, I've, I've always said that basically the backstop is the main issue, but there are so many issues because the deal as it is in general keeps the UK too close to the EU. So that's not exactly something new. They pop their head again now and again just to be a nuisance for any 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 prime minister but uh, what Johnson hasn't been able to do is bring with him some uh, moderate in way in his party and in other parties because it's the summer so they don't want to basically uh, uh, you know show their, their game until we know what's going to happen in September but if he can win uh, the moderate side it wouldn't be a problem to lose those who he knew he was going to to lose anyway the thing is Boris Johnson being Boris Johnson and he decided, like Theresa May, to play more for the, um, uh, you know, the extreme side, the pro-Brexit side, than for the moderate side. I'm not convinced that in the end he's going to be he's going to be able to balance uh, the, uh, the the lose and and, and and the wins. And yes, in the end, in September, he might just find himself in the same position as Theresa May. And before we move on to our next subject, a question for both of you: the perception of Boris Johnson having gone through his week in Europe. He's been seen as an ambitious bluffer. Good turn of phrase. Who doesn't? really pay that much attention to detail has he done anything to perhaps challenge that view and make the europeans think well actually we got him wrong I think what he's done is to differentiate himself from Theresa May who as you say uh, you know who was 
very much detail orientated, as you say, unlike Boris Johnson. But all he had to do was to go along, really. And I think just be nice to them. The, the expectations were so low that as long as he didn't sort of blow a raspberry in their face, um, it would look pretty good. And the fact, as I say, that he came across in a very different way from the very formal, very cold Theresa May, you know, chatting to Macron, putting his foot up on the desk, all that sort of stuff. Whether it'll actually lead to anything, I don't know. But I think the thing he does know is that he does the, the, he does the charm and then he'll hand it over to his, to his experts to deal with that detail. Okay, then let's move on now to our our next subject. And this is Italy, because President Sergio Mattarella has given the country's main political parties four more days to form a viable government after an alliance between the far-right league and anti-establishment five-star movement collapsed. If they don't deliver, he'll have to call an election, an outcome that Interior Minister and League leader Matteo Salvini would relish. He's used his 15 months in government to run an Italian's first campaign underpinned with strident anti-migrant rhetoric. So how would Europe cope with a Salvini-led government. Marie, that's assuming an election is called and that he does win. But then you could argue Europe is no stranger to dealing with um, right-wing governments or right-leaning governments. You've got Viktor Orban. Of course, there was Austria under Sebastian Kurz, the Chancellor, before he was removed. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the main issue would be for Italy would be what would Salvini do with the, the budget? That would be the main issue. They can deal with the far-right politicians uh, in, the, in their midst, as you say. They already did that. But Italy is the third biggest economy in the, uh, in the EU and uh, his, uh, you know, his, uh, the, 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 the country's um, budget and economy is is a very is very much a big a big issue for them. That, so that will depend if Salvini, in a way, if he becomes prime minister, and that's not done. We're going to talk about that. That's not done at all. Uh, can he basically put the mantle of a, a statesman or not at all? Will he be just a populist and run his, his country into difficulties, or will he be able to basically stay the populist he is, but at the same time uh, play with the, in in the grown ups uh, in the grown ups courtyard? And I guess as, as well, Simon, the danger is that um, with if, if Salvini were to win, given that he's a larger-than-life figure, it emboldens the Viktor Orbans and the various other right-wing factions in the EU. Yeah, yeah I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the problem for a lot of the populists across the EU at the moment is their tide is just appearing to, to turn a little bit, isn't it? There's a growing opposition to them. They haven't delivered economically. But what uh, Salvini has uh, in bucket loads is that populist ability to say, it's all against us or whatever. So this is the, the centre left in Italy, it's the EU uh, whoever um, the enemy might be, but populists as we've seen with Donald Trump really thrive when they've got an enemy that they can round their supporters up and, and fire them at. And what are the chances of him winning, Marie? Because he's played the anti-migrant card very, very well and clearly it's it's been appreciated by the Italian public, but is it enough to get him over the line to give him the big prize? Well, first, will there be a line to cross? Because what they start, they're trying to do until Tuesday is to find a, is to find a solution, so there won't be elections. So the problem, the president at the moment, the president is meeting with different party, and the Democratic Party is trying to uh, build a new coalition with the Five Star uh, Movement, so that basically Salvini and his league is just out of of of, of power, and uh, if 
they are strong enough to basically be stable and stability in Italy is not for years and years, it's for a few months. That's already good enough. So if they, if they, if they manage to do that, there won't be an election in, in, in the autumn uh, and Salvini won't be able to basically put his case. But what I thought was very interesting, there was a, there was a poll that was done uh, on, last, on the 21st of August, just a few days after Salvini said, well, I want new, new elections. And the polls, uh, the polls were asking people, what do you think about, about the, the party now? And because Italy, in Italy, summer is so important. Of course, it's so brilliant in Italy to be uh, the, the summer. Uh, the league lost post 6.5 uh, points in terms of popularity just after he decided that. Meaning that the, the, the Italian, they, fe- they have politics all the time and they wanted to have a break of it. And he's being punished in this opinion poll. Whereas the five-star movement has uh, gained two points and the Democratic Party has gained 2.4 points. Meaning that basically those who want to basically do the, do the politics but uh, try not to play the population at the moment they are just relaxing on the beach uh, have the favour of the population but when you know you're back in, back in normal life in September exactly. we'll see if it's yeah, going to so change or not sort of quite like a day school at the moment but <laughs> can blame them but well, exactly yeah but I mean what this has done and what Salvini has done is to expose I guess the emptiness of Italian politics and the actual theme the them against us that has been one of the recurrent motifs but I mean you, the impression you get out of all this is all the horse trading that's going around that it's not about what's best for the country it's all about tactics and again that feeds into that scepticism doesn't it that the eu is fighting on an intrinsic and existential level very much so and i think the other problem i mean obviously italian politics have always been you know quite farcical as you say Marie. chaotic, if you chaotic exactly. <laughs> stability is three weeks of a government isn't it but i think the problem just looking at where a co- coalition might come from is that in italy as in britain as in other countries around the world the fact is the traditional political parties don't map on to the new political landscape um you know just to throw it back to Eng- to britain again for a moment you know i saw a poll recently that showed just just that just seven percent of people support uh, sorry associate themselves with a political party whereas 40 percent associate themselves with leave or remain so i think the same thing in italy is that those political parties just don't really represent um the way ordinary people feel and they're incredibly split which is a real problem for their leaders mm. and, and i guess the problem as well Marie, is that look even if they were to form an agreement and sideline salvini for the moment Is that government going to be stable enough? In other words, is that fear of Salvini enough to hold a government together and to push him aside? Because I know that uh, Matteo Renzi, the former Mm. PM, he's hoping to make a comeback off the back of this. Yes, and that's the real issue basically. Who would be Prime Minister if the Democratic Party and the Five Star managed to find an agreement? Because the Democratic Party leader, Nicola Zingaretti, doesn't want to be Prime Minister. So we are talking about Matteo Renzi and Matteo Renzi is the, is basically would be ideal in a way for Salvini because he's the you know the, the textbook technocrat mm. uh, the one who's not a populist at all and, and arguably the one who perhaps Played a role in the in the in the emergence of the uh, of of Salvini and this kind of people. So if Renzi is at the helm, will it just basically be again the same mistakes? Same old, same old, uh, same old, same old. That's that's the possibility. But there's talk of other people basically that we have f- two more days uh, than planned basically to find a solution. And then talking about women, about someone who's basically popping out of the out of the blue basically to be prime minister. So that, there's a lot of co- of course of difficulties with a new personality being at the helm 
of the country. But if they can find kind of a unity candidate, uh, which as I mean, it, it would be a bit surprising because we don't know who it is four days, two days before before the deadline. But if they can find that, maybe there's there's a way. But still, there's the issue. There's so many issues also that's basically separating the democratic movement and the five star. Uh, the budget, of course, is something mm. important. The the the, the place of the, the parliament is something they don't agree on either. There's so many issues, greeting and important issues that they would have to basically try to figure out how to deal with before they do the coalition. And as they go along, that it, that even if they find someone who would fend off Salvini, it's not it, it can't work for some time. We know that this coalition is really to fend off the populist, mm. and this kind of coalitions are not meant to stay. I mean, I want to put something to, to both of you, and and Simon, I'd like to, you to address it first. Now, there was a piece in the Guardian. It was written by Martin Kettle. And he wrote that Britain and Italy, two countries that were once poles apart, are now the terrible twins of Europe. Because you've got two countries that are hard to govern, driven asunder by a specific issue or one issue in the case of the United Kingdom. And they're drifting towards the right under populist leaders. It's a very compelling case. But do you agree with that? And what does that say about the EU generally and where it's going? That it can't actually cut out this sibling rivalry or, or stop naughty twins from conspiring to bring the house yeah. down well, before it's actually <laughs> exactly. insured. <laughs> yeah, it's a good good metaphor. Well, uh, as a, I think it comes back to that point I was making earlier about the fact that the traditional political parties don't map onto this new political landscape. And uh, I think the problem that both Italy and Britain have is that we really are becoming quite ungovernable just with the current political setup. I think if you know, there's a, there's a possibility perhaps of a, a new political parties emerging or we'll have to see what happens post-Brexit. But I mean, one thing I would say that the two parties, the two countries have in common is that this situation to a large extent has been driven, a lot of people would say, by the EU. You know, they are the ones who pushed and pushed and pushed and now uh, they're getting their comeuppance in that way. So how the EU will deal with it remains to be seen. But I think they're probably quite mindful about the fact that if they handle this wrong, they could make it a lot worse in other countries as well, not just Britain and Italy. Right, so Marie, are Britain and Italy the terrible twins of Europe or is it an over an over-egged I like being a terrible twin. <laughs> Sorry, I like it. Right, well, I guess the twin around the table. <laughs> I'm not sure British would be, would be agree with Simon because, mm. of course, there's the idea of that we are the grown-ups, we are the, the, the mother of parliament, we are a stable government, we are a leading light in Europe, whereas Italy never wanted to be that they just wanted to be Italy basically which is also very fine but of course but it's, it's they didn't have the same objectives and now at the moment it's true and the, the, I read the piece yesterday and, and what it was saying basically is that the UK had to basically change the way he wants to be seen uh, to be able to cater for the homogens in a way and uh, and in doing that they ended up doing like Italy being more interested about uh, winning elections about the popularity of the government in in the UK that basically instance in in Europe and in the world, and in that sense, yes, that's uh, they are the terrible twins. Because if you uh, start thinking about yourself more than thinking about basically the, the greater good or the you know the Western Western world or even just Europe, you end up basically having difficulties to just deal with the big issues of of the world. And uh, at the moment, in particular, I think that's why this piece was uh, published at the moment with the G7. It's all the more important to understand how each country. 
want to play their cards in the inter international uh, game. We always knew Italy had this stance. The UK is changing its stance at the moment. Okay, then, but we don't speak Italian in Britain at, at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's not overdo the twin analogy. But you're listening to Monocle's House View, still to come, the day's newspapers. The Golden Age of Aviation is a brand new series on Monocle 24, chronicling and celebrating all that was great about commercial airline travel during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. We'll be meeting pilots, designers, cabin crew, engineers and even pop stars to tell you stories about engineering innovators, fearless individuals in boardrooms and cockpits and the big brands that defined a new era of travel. You know, that's what it is for me. It's this feeling of, of optimism and, and possibilities and, and just sort of reaching out to the world, being able to shrink the world, bring people together. Download the Golden Age of Aviation in association with Breitling every other Thursday. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Juliette Foster and still with me are my guests Marie Bion and Simon Brook. It's time now for a look at the day's newspapers and we're going to start with the front page. We were talking populism and populism and it's the front page, in fact, of the Financial Times, the weekend edition. Boris Johnson making the headlines again, Simon. Yes, um, we've got actually some extra populists here. I think we could throw... Um, uh, a collective of populists. <laughs> what do you call the, co what's the... What's the collective noun? I don't know. We can um, add President uh, uh, Bolsonaro... Uh, uh, Bolsonaro of uh, Brazil and also Donald Trump here. Yes, exactly, because uh, Boris Johnson has joined with his EU colleagues and even that, I'm just wondering, is there a bit of politics there? Has he decided <laughs> which side of the Atlantic am I going to plant my flag on? But anyway, he's he's joined uh, Macron and Merkel and others to condemn the Brazilian government for the fires um, that uh, that have been sweeping through the Amazon rail rainforest. And this obviously pictures him very much, as I say, with Macron and Merkel and the EU against Donald Trump, who's been a great supporter of uh, uh, Bolsonaro. And, mm, and anti-G7, -G basically, yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's quite interesting here. I'm wondering whether Boris Johnson thinks that it's at this current critical juncture when it comes to negotiating, perhaps, with the EU, it's probably a good idea to plant his flag on this side of mm. the uh, Although we the shouldn't Atlantic. forget as well that, um, yes, D Donald Trump will be there, but he's also dangled that rather tempting morsel of a trade deal between Britain and the United States in this post-Brexit world. So do you see, think, Marie, that perhaps he might withdraw it slightly if, um, he's, if, if Mr Johnson is seen to be um, aligning himself with the EU against the Trump of the tropics? Trump is certainly arriving in France thinking, oh, I'm going to have one mate there that's going to be Boris Johnson. He doesn't want to lose his mate because he knows the other are not exactly the best, his best friends. So if Johnson uh, plays his card badly, he might lose the uh, friendship of, of Trump. And that's very important in terms of international mm. relations to have uh, Trump's, um, Trump's friendship. So, but, uh, I mean, what the, the piece of the FT says is that, yes, Johnson has joined the chorus to condemn um, the Amazon fires, but they he, Johnson didn't go as far as uh, Macron did. He didn't say, oh, I want, I'm going to veto, or I'm in favour of vetoing the EU-Mercosur um, deal. So, in a way, he basically is playing both houses again, right. Boris Johnson, saying, yes, to a line. I'm with you, Europe, but do you know Trump? That's okay, I'm not going to be too tough yeah. on that. You see, the thing is, he doesn't want to be swamped with a, tw a, Twitter, a Twitter blizzard. Although, having said that, it can actually do wonders for your career to be abused by Donald Trump on Twitter. <laughs> Let's move on now, Marie, to your
your choice. This is page three of Le Monde. And thankfully, there is a translation of the story because my French is not very good. But it's Cohesion and International Summits, which is a bit weird, really, because there was a, there, there appears to be a lack of cohesion in the G7. Yes, yeah, so basically what the, the piece is asking is that at this moment, can we still have a multilateralist la- world, basically? Are we still basically all working together in, in, the, you know, in the bettering of the world? Or is it now, again, the time of, uh, you know, alliances country by country uh, because mainly of Donald Trump and uh, Ma- Emmanuel Macron is has been thrust with the the weight of the world basically he's the one who's kind of the leader de facto leader of Europe in terms of the heads of government used to be Angela Merkel but she's weakened in her country mm. and I don't uh, see him objecting to having this new ma- this this new leadership role by the way he seems quite comfortable with it you know in France <laughs> we we play the humility but in a way we're very happy about this kind of position. <laughs> Macron, well known for his humility. <laughs> yeah, his nickname, Napoleon. The Sun Napoleon. Exactly, exactly <laughs> that. So, yeah, so that's, uh, that's absolutely mm. that, basically. And he's, it's, it's, a, it's a role that he's delighted to play in a way because, you know, for French president, when they're in difficulty at home, they always try to play big on the international scene. And this is just, you know, it's, it's a big, it's, it's a big gift for him in a way to be able to, to play uh, this role and to be the host of the G7 this year. It's, it's, it's going to be good. Does for this him. explain why his friendship with Boris Johnson at that Paris meeting? was so, well, the handshake was so effusive because Boris Johnson has done him a huge favour, basically. You've, you've put me into the, into, the, into the numero uno seat. I don't think that's why exactly. I mean, he's, he's, he's I'm got just being tongue in cheek. I'm just being tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. I'm just being tongue-in-cheek. Let's move on now from international affairs to page 11 of The Times. This was your choice, Simon, and this is A-level reform slash arise in private schools practical courses. Just to explain an A-level, that's a higher education certificate in the British education system. Yes, and it's a big debate at the moment going on in Britain and I think um, probably in other countries around the world as well. How vocational, how practical should these qualifications be? And as you say, A-levels traditionally the step to university Mm. and you'd get a a degree from university but that's been changed radically in Britain over the last 20 years. So many more people now go to university and have a degree. Many of them coming out with huge debts and saying, actually, you know, what am I getting for this? So there has been this move and the government's been driving it uh, the previous government and this one uh, so the previous Tory government I'm getting confused my governments but governments anyway over the last few years have been driving this move towards practical qualifications the BTEC as it's called Business and Technical mm. Technology Education Council Awards and what's interesting here about this story is it's not just um, the, the state schools who are doing it but the private schools and they got the example here of Ampleforth College in North Yorkshire which is Mm. one of the most famous private schools in Britain so I think the real question is uh, it's a sort of practicality over snobbery thing and Marie was saying in France there's a snobbery isn't there uh, about uh, (laughs) intellectual pursuits rather than practical (laughs) ones but actually in terms of what will give me the best start in life and help me earning some money in these days when you can do an apprenticeship in insurance and accountancy at things, this is, I think, is another step towards that more, you know, practical approach. Mm. Let's move on now, finally, to a story which um, is is both business and political, I suppose. Peppa Pig. Okay, I mean, look, I've, I, I hold my hands up to it. I only sort of got into the idea of Peppa Pig when my grandsons were born, so I'm just catching up on it. But Peppa's been bought. Peppa is no longer British. Yeah, Peppa is not longer British. She, she's American. She's been bought by Hasbro, uh, a big inter- entertainment company 
company. It's not just Peppa Pig who's been bought. It's the ent entertainment one company who's been bought. So they also have a little... Uh, they also... Now the US company will have Peppa Pig, My Little Pony, Play-Doh and all that. So it's going to be... It's a big giant of the uh, American entertainment for kids. But, but what's the... But I guess that Peppa's cheap, though, because of the pound. That's the <laughs> yeah. That's that's <laughs> Apparently Absolutely. she's so popular in the US that, that young... Uh, that American toddlers are now talking about mummy instead of mommy. So somebody's very proud of my English language. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted with that, I have to say. Okay, so Pe Pepper Pig is now going to be American yeah. in, in the series. <laughs> no, don't say that. <laughs> don't say well. no, no. And that's all because of Brexit, because of yeah, the fall yeah, of the pound. I, I knew we could actually get the B yeah. word in there. Pepper's going to blame we? Brexit for it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, guys, that's all for today's programme. Thank you so much to my delightful guest, Marie Biron. Thank you. And Simon Brook. Thank you. Now, our supervising producer, the Roll Call of Honours, was Ben Ryland and our studio researcher was Charlie Fulmercourt and our studio manager, the excellent Max Bauer. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 9am on Sunday, London time with my colleague Paul Osborne. I'm Juliette Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>